recording. There we go. Uh, let's see. We've got our passage for today. We lost Carl. We'll just have to email him and tell him he's been replaced. <clears throat> our passage for today is Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8. <clears throat> we have been uh, rolling through Romans. I think this is session number 36 on Romans alone, um, which is probably about... 35 more than I thought I would do. Um, <clears throat> but as we get through these uh, sections, we're getting into a section that is somewhat familiar in that uh, we're going to be dealing with the, uh, the gifts of the Spirit as, if <clears throat> excuse me, as found in the book of Romans. Now that you have the handout in front of you, let's read the text, uh, verses 3 through 8 together. So at least you have a familiarity with what is being taught today. <clears throat> For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. The one who teaches, in his teaching. The one who exhorts, in his exhortation. The one who contributes, in generosity. The one who leads, with zeal the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Now, <clears throat> what makes this particular passage uh, somewhat difficult to teach is that it's repetitive of other sections in Paul's writings. You have other sections that uh, both in Ephesians and in 1 Corinthians talking about the body of Christ. You have other sections of scripture that deal with the gifts of the Spirit. And so we come back to this and it's, it's almost, well, I already know this. Well, maybe you do, maybe you don't. And I had to think, I had to kind of stop myself because I, I almost thought, oh, I'll combine verses 3 through 8 with verses 9 to 21. And we'll just do verses 3 through 21. Yeah, whoa. Um, but that would mean pretty much skipping this section. Just as a kind of a, here you go, yeah, it's been there, been there, done that, we bought the bookmark, and we can move on. <clears throat> Let's not do that. Let's come to this afresh. While it may seem familiar, it's always good to rehearse the familiar. The other thing that struck me is that we taught, as a class, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Do you remember how long ago it was? I looked it up. It was 
basically December of 2019 through February of 2020. We spent five full lessons on that one chapter, specifically on the gifts of the Spirit. We really dug deep. But then I realized half the class wasn't here. We have turnover, we have new people, we have this, uh, the, the situation was, you might have even missed one of the classes. I might have taught it and I might have missed it. Uh, but anyway, and I went back and I looked at it and went, wow, we really dug deep. Good, then let's maybe not spend five weeks on this topic, we're gonna do it just today. But I'm going to be bringing out the handouts from those period, and I'm going to be handing them out again, so you, at least you have it for your own study. But I wanted to look to start, as my uh, typical process is, to look at the various phrases in a different way. For example, verse 3 of Romans 12. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. It starts with, for the grace given to me. Why would Paul write that? Why didn't he just start the sentence with, I say to everyone among you to not think of himself more highly? Why did he start with this preamble? And that's not a rhetorical question. Why do you think he says this, he writes this, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone. Why would he say that? Yeah? He's a spokesman. He's, He's a spokesman. It's not his material. <clears throat> okay, that's one, one, yeah? Humility that he has. Uh-huh. Well, Christ, he used to think very highly of himself. Exactly. This was a problem an in himself. And he's acknowledging it. Remember, his audience has not met him. The people, the church at Rome, he has not visited before. He is writing to strangers. His reputation as a uh, know-it-all might have preceded him. Now, the, it may not have been phrased that way. I highly doubt that that would have been but he, that he's a very knowledgeable person. But too much is given, much is required. And so it's very, uh, how, how often have we seen it in our lifetime of a leader, even a secular leader, or a Christian leader that gets very full of themselves and then begins to display their fullness for everyone to observe. And then they lose the respect of those around them and they don't see it for what it is. And you can fill on the blank. Here's probably 50 examples that we could use of this happening. Paul is saying, hey, God spoke to me and by the grace given to me, I'm saying to you. Right? That's the first thing to notice. Paul's humility in talking about humility. Then I threw down on the handout for you the Greek words found in verse 3 that are very intriguing. Notice the middle of the verse 
where it says not to not think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. Look at the Greek, and I'm going to read it out loud so you can hear it. Huperfronine, parde fronine, ala fronine, ice to sophronine. You kind of hear a word over and over and over again. No, it's not German, even though it has nine in it, or it sounds like Fraulein. No, that's not what's going on here. It's the word think. Four times. Two of them with additional meaning to it. And oh, wait, didn't we just talk about the mind in verse 2 of chapter 12? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And the next verse, he's saying, uh, don't be high-minded. Don't, you know, in other words, think about what you're doing. And so the, the Greek word, the first one, huper, phronine, means to, the, the huper means above. That's why that's the idea of high-mindedness, to be overly concerned of your own self-worth, but to think, and then to think sophronine. The so, there's many different, my understanding is many different ways of the Greek interpretation of that prefix, but the one that came out in uh, most of the places I was looking was to save, to save your thinking. Some translations translate this not as sober-minded, but as sound mind. To be of sound mind. And all I could think of is the beginning of a will. I, so-and-so, being of sound mind, declare. Well, what does that mean? It means you're right-minded. You have your full faculties. You know what you're doing. <clears throat> But then there's the other meaning here of sober-minded. Well, you know, in our culture, we think sober as the um, counter to being drunk. That's how we think of it. So, but so what do, you, what do you think? Not Again, not a rhetorical question. What is Paul trying to counter by using the phrase sober-mindedness? versus the high-mindedness. What is he trying to say? What do you, what do you think? <laughs> Sometimes we think too highly of ourselves because we're a little high on ourselves. Okay. So we're, we're not um, kind of on a little tear of like, oh, look at me, or look at how great this is about me. Or, and there's sort of this um, non- Stable feeling to it. Okay. This kind of like. And are you saying the sober-minded is a counter to that? To being well, high, we use the word high in two ways. Right? Mm -hmm. So there's a, a way in which being sober about yourself is being realistic. Okay. <clears throat> observing what's really there, right? As opposed to idealizing yourself mm -hmm. or imagining yourself the way you want to be, or imagine. Imagining yourself, you know. Well, yeah. go ahead. There's the idea of weighty seriousness. Uh huh. The 
intriguing thing to me is why Paul would even be saying this. It just, what in the inspiration of Scripture from God, God is working his message to us through Paul. He's talked about present your bodies as a living sacrifice, transformed by the renewal of your mind. Now, stop thinking of yourself so highly. I guess it feels like they're connected, and they absolutely are connected, right? Go ahead. I was going to say, it also comes before what comes next, which is spiritual gifts. Exactly. He's leading up to the purpose of all of this, in that if you set the foundation, we were just talking earlier, is that if you have a foundation on a, uh, a derivation of thinking, then that derivation is going to change. But if your mind is set on the firm foundation of the word, then the derivations are interesting. They can be countered by sound thinking and by right thinking. But if you start over on the peripheral and make that your foundation, that's going to be caught, cast to and fro by various um, pundits. But if your foundation is solid, yeah. Steve, I'm looking at verse 2 again, because he starts this verse 3 with 4, so I'm wondering if, do not be conformed to this world, that the schematics of the world, mm -hmm. where the world is always pushing people to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to, mm -hmm. or maybe in Roman culture even more lowly than we ought to be. But Paul's saying, hey, let's bring it back to what you, the way God made you, not too high, not too low, just right where you should be. Right. And that gets to the last part of verse 3. According to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Not too high, not too low. Um, it's interesting, because we, again, we, when we start picking things apart and we pull a verse out like this, we forget it's other usages of a word like thinking or mind. Even in Romans itself, Romans 5 through 7, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is, uh, is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God and does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. That word mind is phronine. It's thinking. You go into Romans chapter 8, verse 27. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And even in chapter 11, which with preceding this, verse 25. Lest you be wise to, in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery. And that word understanding has a root in it for this idea of thinking. <clears throat> Paul doesn't just blurt out stuff without context. And we must look at the totality of the book of Romans and what is trying to be presented to us. The, 
tendency is to take chapters 1 through 11 and say that's all doctrine, and chapter 12 through 16 is how we're supposed to live it out. Okay, that's a simplistic division, and it can make sense as you read it, but you have to forget there's not one without the other, and they are interconnected. Even, I was looking over at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 13. If we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. The same idea, the same point he's trying to make. Bottom line is you have a verse that doesn't use the word, but the concept of humility is right here. It was brought up earlier. You talked about this humility that Paul is, is, um, is discussing. And so I wrote here, I said, this idea is so very crucial to our Christian faith and to our life as a church. For pride is the root of so much sin. And pride is the foundation of narcissism. And we are a society of narcissists right now. The look at me. Take a picture of me. Oh, don't I look good? Don't I look this or that? And it, it's no different than what it has been. I mean, again, I, I will constantly re think of my own dad saying many of these same things 50 years ago. And most likely, his dad said it to him 50 years before that. And my great-grandfather probably said it to my grandfather 50 years before that. Pride is the root of this mess that we call life. So, you kind of think, oh, okay, yeah, well, then I'm going to be humble today. Um, it's not a switch. This is what Francis Schaeffer said in his uh, sermon called No Little People, No Little Places. We should seek the lowest place because there it is easier to be quiet before the face of the Lord. Quietness and peace before God are more important than any influence a position may seem to give. For we must stay in step with God to have the power of the Spirit. Take the smaller place. The scripture emphasizes that much can come from little if the little is truly consecrated to God. There are no little people and no big people in the true spiritual sense, but only consecrated and unconsecrated. In every one of us, there remains a seed of wanting to be the boss, of wanting to be in control and have the word of power over our fellows. This attitude taken from the world, is more dangerous to the Christian than fleshly amusements. Isn't that interesting when you think about it? And, uh, you know, again, it 
when you're studying this and you're preparing, I have these moments where I just simply go, you know, get out the whole, you know, flagell self-flagellation whip going, oh, bad, Steve, bad, bad, bad. That's how we think. We think that we should be in control. We can't relinquish it. <clears throat> and it feels good to have power. But it's so dangerous. So I wrote three things about humility here. Um, I wrote humility is, a, is an outward focus. To be self-aware but not too aware. In other words, we know our place. We know we're sinful creatures set down here, you know, unworthy. We, we talk that word, talk. We discuss it here, even in this class. We may think that. But humility is not being so self-aware that you realize that you're being humble when you're doing it. Galatians 6.3 it reads, for, anyone, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. <laughs> Gee, thanks, Paul. Um, no, not you, Paul. Uh, <laughs> the other Paul. <laughs> Number two, humility is not self-condemnation. Now, again, we have to be careful and balanced. There is that idea of being aware of our sinfulness. <clears throat> but you can't just walk around saying, oh, I'm nothing. In fact, there's a story from uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who when he was a you know, great preacher, very well known, beloved throughout the, uh, the, the country of England and uh, just had so many quote-unquote fans. So he was coming to an event and a fella came to pick him up at the train station. And the fella says, oh, Dr. Jones, I am unworthy. I am no good, so can I carry your bags? And Dr. Jones looked at him and says, yeah, you are unworthy in God's sight. The guy was fishing for a compliment. He was trying to tell Martin Lord Jones how humble he was so that Jones would go, oh, no, 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 you're okay, you're a good man, you know, God loves you, and then they move on. Instead, he looks at him and goes, yep, you're a sinner, all right. Pick up those bags, you know. Uh, but there is that thing where we can fall into that because we're actually seeking a compliment. And that's not right either. Our life is not to be calculated, manipulative, self-protecting, or self-advancing. That's what I wrote down. <coughs> Number three, we need to be aware, or be aware of false humility, which I've referred to a little bit. As I wrote here, LOL. Yes, I use that <laughs> phrase. <coughs> LOL, if you're thinking about being humble, you're not being humble. It shouldn't even be on the mind. It just, it becomes part of who you are. And Gavin Ortland has a new little book called Humility. So I think you said you heard a radio program of him trying to talk up and sell his book on humility. 
which is really hard for the author when they're trying to go, oh, you've got to read it. It's the greatest book in the world uh, on this topic. And that, um, in fact, when I lecture to, uh, to writers, I have a, one particular class called Marketing versus Ministry because of the tension that the Christian life is saying, do not raise yourself up. And yet the world is saying, if you don't raise up, nobody's going to read you. So there's this tension among authors all the time. Anyway, <coughs> excuse me, Gavin Ortland writes this. Humility is more than simply one more virtue to aim at. It is to be the atmosphere and quality in which we experience all of life. Humility is not just another thing to do. It is the way we should do everything. What a brilliant statement. Humility is not just another thing to do. It is the way we should do everything. And Sinclair Ferguson has this comment. He writes, Christian contentment, therefore, is the direct fruit of having no higher ambition than to belong to the Lord and to be totally at his disposition in the place he appoints at the time he chooses and with the provisions he is pleased to give. So the text continues to verse 4. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. The three main passages, as I mentioned before, on the body of Christ, that metaphor is here, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, verses 1 through 31, the entire chapter, and Ephesians 4, 1 through 13. Years ago, I met an author who was a best-selling author, mostly in fiction, but he had written a number of nonfiction titles. And in the course of the conversation, I discovered that he doesn't go to church <laughs> at all anymore because he got tired of the people in the church. And this is what, 20 years ago? And as far as I know, he still has yet to attend a church. And yet he is a Christian author, writing in the Christian community, influencing other Christians. And even one of the pamphlets that he wrote once and distributed at, a, at, a, at an event that which he had never done that, but it was pretty much saying that the church is so full of fallacies and hypocrisy that no one should ever attend again. I'm sorry, that's not biblical. We are called to be part of this body. And it's a, it was a challenge, as we all know, theologically, psychologically, spiritually, and many other levels during the shutdown of the pandemic when we weren't allowed to gather as a people. And there are many churches across the country that are still struggling to get the people back. They've just decided, you know, I didn't need that after all. Oh, what a dangerous thing. There's no Lone Ranger Christianity. 
There's no such thing. Now, while he may not have been a, uh, a model for the Christian faith, John Donne had a pretty interesting poem called No Man is an Island, which reads, No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less. As well if a promontory were, or well as if a manor or a house of the friends, or of thine own were. Any man's death diminishes me because I'm involved in mankind, and therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls, for it tolls for thee. This idea that we can get along without anybody else, we don't need anybody else, it's really dangerous. And I think Paul's metaphor of the body was so interesting. I don't think anyone had ever done that before, making that metaphor concept of you've got the little pinky and you've got the hair follicle and you've got all of it working together. Because remember in the Greek thinking, the body and the soul were so separate. You could say the soul, do anything you want with the body. The body was, it was immaterial, it didn't matter. And he's saying, let's take that metaphor and go, no, let's put it on its head. Oh, <coughs> pun intended. Um, but to look at it differently, this unity. So, this is my other handout. This is the big one. I'll help it spread it around here. So what you have in front of you, and for those who are online or listening via video, you'll have to look it up when I repost these uh, with this class later this week. This is basically three massive charts that I created three and a half years ago for our class. The first is the list of the spiritual gifts. The second uh, handout is a discussion on whether or not the gifts are even viable today, especially the miraculous one. And the last one, which is three pages long, defines all of the spiritual gifts with scripture references, def definitions, and various notes related to all of this. I can't believe I put all that together back then. It's like, what was I thinking? Anyway, um, I hope it's helpful to you. We're not going to dive into all of this in detail. But I do want you to look at this chart of the gifts themselves. Because when most people talk of the spiritual gifts, they focus on 1 Corinthians 12. Obviously, that's where the majority of them are listed. But we have four places where spiritual gifts are mentioned in Scripture. You have the first two columns is, is one of them, chapter 12 of Corinthians. Then chapter 12 of Romans, then Ephesians, and then in 1 Peter, there are two of them referred to. Now let's look at that middle column on this chart and look at the Romans passage because that's today's passage. What three gifts are unique to Romans and not mentioned anywhere else? 
So the first one is exhortation. exhortation. The second one, giving. And the last one, isn't that interesting? Out of the seven that are listed in Romans, three of them are unique to any of the litany of gift lists. Now the first thing you have to look at is to realize there is no definitive roster of the gifts of the Spirit, period. Anybody who says there is, they're wrong. There is not one list, one master list in the scripture. <clears throat> Which, as some would say, that could possibly mean that there are others outside of what are listed. Ooh, now we get into some squirrely water. But, squirrely um, water. Yes, squirrely water. <coughs> I should have brought my um, can of worms. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> but before I before we get even further into this I want to go into a little bit of a preamble on the gifts themselves who gives the gifts God the spirit who receives the gifts every believer So, who gets the good ones and who gets the bad ones? There's no such thing. But that is the mentality, which is why Paul wrote about humility. And why Paul wrote about the body as having multiple functions. And the thing is, the gift is not a benefit for the recipient. You get the gift of whatever. It's not for you. It's for you to give away. So it's one of those odd things. And it was just so interesting that you had, again, Pastor Jim talking about how to give thanks. And he's talking about, well, what do you give to the person who's given you everything and doesn't need anything? I'm, I'm just sitting there going, I'm going to be talking about this in the class. Because we're receiving a gift it's not ours. We don't get a special certificate from God. Ooh, he has the gift of this. And we laminate it, and we frame it, and we pray to it. No, that is not what it is. It's immediately intended for someone in the body who needs that gift. It is a gift meant to be given away. Teaching means that there's people who need to be taught. If it's mercy, it means someone's in need of compassion. If it's leadership, that means there's some people need to be led. That's why Paul writes this passage the way he does. He says, you prophesy this way. Teaching for the teaching. Service for service. It's not complicated. We don't need to make it complicated. But, and I underlined the word but in my notes, the gifts do not come from strength. They come from God. 
And they relate to the needs of the church, not the gift carrier. We have to keep that in mind at all times and in all ways. If we were to go over to the Corinthian passage and you wonder why Paul spent so much space writing about the gifts, it's because the church in Corinth was bickering and people were saying, well, I got this one. <laughs> you don't. Sorry. We get to have coffee. You get tea. Now, for some of you might think that's not a bad thing. But anyway, there's this, there is no hierarchy of gifts. We might think there is because some are on a stage or in a public forum. Ooh, they're special. Others are never seen by anyone, and they are just as effective. <coughs> now, I was thinking about this um, this week because of the variety of gifts and the various, you know, strengths and weaknesses of, of churches. And then I was listening to um, a sermon, now I can't remember his name. Uh, it's not material, not material. But he said, when you think about a small church, and Lisa and I attended a very small church for a number of years. I think it was 40 people, maybe? 40 to 60? two and a half when we got married. Yeah, 40 to 60 people. That's a small church. But you know what? That church had every spiritual gift it needed in that church. God knew. God knew the people that he needed to bring to that church, then gifted those people when they became believers so that they would end up in that congregation applying those gifts within that church. There was nothing missing, per se. Then you go over to the megachurch, and there's thousands of people. It's like, oh, there's plenty of stuff. I don't need to do anything. It's already taken care of. Then why is there so much recruitment necessary? Because when the bigger it is, the more help is needed. Because there's more need. It's not just because one person can't do it all but there is more need. And the small church is not in the business of recruiting gifted people. They don't put an ad in the Christian Times and say, anybody know how to teach the Bible? Please come to our church. We can use your help. No, it's a Lord, We've lost our teacher. They had to move out of town. We really desperately need someone to come in to teach this particular group. Lord, please provide that to us. Bang. That person shows up and begins teaching. It's just how it works. And we forget that. We absolutely forget that. So I wrote down um, in your handout, the Greek words that are underlying 
all the major pieces of this section. So having gifts, and that is the word charismata, where we get our word charismatic. Um, but charismata, that's what they're talking about, the gifts. And they differ according to the grace given to us. There's that idea of grace again. In, I think it's in the Ephesians passage. I don't remember, I, I may have that right, wrong. Um, but Paul refers to the gifts as the graces. It's somewhere he does that. And that's an interesting concept, is that this is a grace, this is a gift from God. In fact, I have a quote here from Ray Stedman, which I thought was interesting. So Ray Stedman, in his, in his sermon on this passage, he, he wrote, suppose I had here a number of electrical appliances, a toaster, an iron, an electric fan, a hairdryer, and a few other gadgets, such as we have abundantly available to us today. Each of them is designed to do a different thing. Each has a different function, but they all use the same power. What an incredible metaphor. And unless they're connected to that power, they're useless. And this is the way with the spiritual gift. It's a divinely given capacity to receive power. However, that power can be. Because the power of the Holy Spirit, if that's the source, is a gift exercised in a way to bless, minister, and help, and advance the cause of God. But if the power is the power of the flesh, the gift is exercised in a way to destroy, injure, divide, and sever. This goes back to that humility passage where Paul is saying, don't think too highly of yourself. You've been given the, the, uh, the spiritual gift of prophecy. Don't just walk around going, I prophesy on your behalf. It's like, you're probably making it up right now. Or you wait until there's a large group of people before you suddenly start practicing your gifts. Now, you know, there are, as you'll see in that one chart about whether or not the miraculous gifts like healing and tongues and some of those things ended in the first century or if they're still viable today, we're not going to get into that conversation today. You can, you can listen to the, uh, the recordings. They are available online for you. Or you can look at that chart and see how it's broken down from four different ways of viewing it, which is wonderfully confusing for our minds. Um, But I remember reading of a gentleman who, according to the stories, he had the gift of healing. The thing is, nobody knew about it for like a decade. He was so humble and quiet, and he would be using his gift in bringing sustenance and healing to people. And when it was discovered, it was almost like he reacted so, please don't tell anybody. I'm not doing this for me. I thought that was amazing to read about. Because, my gosh, you could become a bazillion millionaire, get a TV show. You could do arena events. You could be famous. No, that's, 
That's not what the gift of healing was for. It was for those that, with whom he was called to serve. So, let's start looking at what's here. We have the first one, if prophecy in proportion to our faith. Now, prophecy is not the foretelling, F-O-R-E, telling. Yeah, it could be that, but that isn't what he's talking about here. This is more the forth-telling, F-O-R-T-H, the proclamation. Definition I, I wrote down here is communication of revealed truth in a manner that convicts or builds up its hearers. There are many who would define prophecy or forth-telling as what a preacher does. They are preaching to the heart and the, and the will. They are presenting revealed truth in a manner that convicts or builds up its hearer. Now what's interesting is the phrase, in proportion to our faith. That word proportion is the word analogia, where we get our word analog. Second half of the word, logic. So a analogia, let me get my other notes here. This comes from the world of math and philosophy. It means to have the correct proportion, the right amount. And as I wrote down here, uh, where is it? The prophet should say no more and no less than what God has given them to say. It's the right proportion. That's the gift, the gift that God has given it doesn't go beyond it. It doesn't say less. It's given what is given in that opportunity. And if you think about it, you know, analogia or that right relationship, uh, I just had to bring up the fact that Tuesday is National Pie Day. You go, what? Not P-I-E, but P-I. Yes. Well, also P-I-E. <laughs> That pi, which is circumference divided by diameter. And in every case, no matter what the size of the circle, this is one of the beauties of math in God's economy, that something is so precise, you can have a teeny tiny circle or a circle as big as the universe. When you divide its circumference by its diameter, you get 3.1. 3.14159265359, etc., 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 to infinity. There's no end to these numbers. It's every time, no matter how big the circle is, that's the right proportion. God has created a, a, a universe that has meaning and connectivity and logic to it. It's kind of amazing that you would have that. And for those of you who follow my Fun Fridays that I put on my agency blog, the Fun Friday on this last Friday was someone put pi to music. They assigned a number to a, to the key, to a key on a piano and began playing 
314159265395 and went through and the pie continues across the screen as they're playing and then created an underline and it's this beautiful melody and you're going oh this is really weird not only is it precise it's beautiful who could have ever thought that something as uh, I mean, we have to do geography in Bible class um, is so beautiful. You mean geometry? Did I say that? Is <laughs> it geography? Yes, we have to do geography in Bible class, but not geometry. <laughs> I just uh, exposed my lack of perfection to all of you in very vivid form. Anyway, uh, the next gift that is uh, discussed is service. Diaconian or deacon as we would use it and isn't it interesting that our church is right in the midst of a discussion of how to define the role of deacon more intentionally within our congregation uh, than it has been. I grew up in a church that didn't have elders, it had deacons. So, I, so what's the big deal about deacons? They're always, they're, they're everywhere. And I'm like, well, no, churches have different governance uh, structures, but the idea is to serve or to help. And what's fascinating, the Greeks regarded diakonia as degrading and dishonorable. It was the menial stuff. It's the cleaning of the toilets. It's the person who sweeps the yard. These are the, these people don't have any value. They're just doing dumb stuff. And through the inspiration of the Spirit, God uses this as a spiritual gift and suddenly elevates what could be perceived as meaningless to the Greek, and the Greek hearer would go, that's a spiritual gift? Yes, it is. Yeah. Tim Keller talked about this recently, one of the, um, well, not recently, one of the sermons that was posted recently about work, uh -huh. and how, um, I think Luther was talking about the milkmaid, and uh -huh. just the, the most basic cleaning services and stuff, um, are all, God caring for people yeah. like yeah. they're the hands and feet of God because if you don't have someone cleaning your house or you're doing it yourself you will die yeah from lack of hygiene I mean yeah. it has even the most menial menial tasks are worthy yeah. of being respected basically. I just think it's beautiful how in a simple word like this it fills in all of the gaps of everything that could be done in a congregation or in a body. And again, it's not something that you posted on the bulletin board. Hey, I cleaned Tom's house. Boy, is he a slob. You know, like, <laughs> it's like, no, it's, it's done because it is a gift that you wish to give. It is service. It's not meant for, oh, look at me. It's a, I'm doing this because I'm called to do it, because I have the ability. 
I'm really good at this. Next one, you have teaching, didaskon. To pass on the truth about God's word as best as you know how, is how I defined it. I'm put here in a position of teaching. I've been teaching on and off for 40 years. And there are times where I wish I didn't have the gift because sometimes it takes a little bit of effort. Um, teaching instructs the mind. Prophecy instructs the heart and the will. So if you think about it, and I'm very aware of this when I come into the preparation for our class, I'm trying to impart knowledge. I'm trying sometimes to say, here's some stuff that we can talk about in this context that don't fit a sermon. Because if Pastor Jim spent an hour, like I'm doing here, we all be going, man, would you stop already? It's this, this is not the point. He's trying to encourage, to impart knowledge, yes, but mostly to encourage the heart. I come in, I'm trying, at least a, I mean, it's the attempt, is to help us understand something, and if there is an application, I can bring it in, but that's not the point. It's a, a side benefit, if you want to say, or I might find that this inspired me in this way, maybe it'll inspire you. Then you have exhortation, paraklon. The root word is paraclete, to come alongside, like the Holy Spirit does, come alongside. The idea of encouraging others to practice what they've been taught. And this is the only place in scripture where this is mentioned as, an, as a uh, spiritual gift. But I'll bet there have been people in your life that they may not be your teacher, they may not be your pastor, but boy, do they encourage you. They exhort you or they kind of look at you and go, you know, you, you need to get your act together. You're starting to mess up. And that is a gift to be able to say it in a manner of humility that it can be received and then practiced upon. Because you have some who walk around because they know it all and they tell everyone else how wrong they are. Well, you shouldn't be thinking that way. You shouldn't be dressing that way. You shouldn't, you know, drive that kind of car. What's wrong with you? Um, like, come on, that's not exhortation. That's Annoying. <laughs> and I don't see that in the list. <laughs> Sorry. The next one, that he who contributes or gives, depending on your translation, the Greek word metadidius, didomi is the word give. This is metadidomi. In other words, big give. And to say it and do it in generosity you have this idea that if you have that gift, if you have the means and the gift of giving, then don't hold on to it. There's the story of Robert Letourneau, who was a oil man in Texas. And 
you know, he had read about the, as he began earning more money, he said, you know, I was giving my tithe, my 10%, but I said, you know, I'm, I'm making so much money. It's getting ridiculous. So I'm going to raise my 10% to 15. And as soon as he did that, he started making even more money. So he said, I'm going to need to give away 20%. And he got more money. <laughs> By the end of his life, he was giving away 90% of his income. 90%. Laterno College exists because he paid for it. There are many ministries that are still in place today because he created endowments for the ministry of God because he realized this principle. I've been given so much. All my needs are taken care of. My family's taken care of. I still have all of this to give to them and the next generation, but instead, what am I gonna do with it? I'm gonna give it away. That's amazing. But it isn't just saying, you know, if you're super wealthy, it's basically the whole principle of giving is a concept of a spiritual gift. Then you have leading. The Greek word technically means before, stand, pro, histamy, pro, stand, pro, before standing, so standing before someone, but to do that with diligence, eagerness, zeal, earnestness. There's many other word, ways of translating that word zeal. And then lastly on this list, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness, which is interesting because he could have said the one who gives does it in cheerfulness. Because isn't it in 2 Corinthians 9-7, he says God loves a cheerful giver. And 2 Corinthians was written before Romans, chronologically. So he doesn't use that word here. Instead, he uses the idea of cheerfulness with mercy. So I'm going to ask you, what does that mean? Mercy and cheerfulness don't necessarily seem like synonyms on the face of it, do they? So why would he phrase it that way when he could have said, use your mercy generously and use your giving cheerfully? But he does it the other way around. And it's the Greek word hilar, uh, hilar, hilar, uh, hilarstetai, or hilarity. So we get our word hilarity for the word cheerfulness. So what, what, what's this combo, this mercy and cheerfulness? What do you think is mean, he means here? I don't have an answer, so I'm hoping that you can give me the answer. People were often asked to give mercy to, or not always kind of people who are going to you know, thank us and such. Sometimes it's really hard. That's a good point. Because they're, they're usually the idea of mercy is a compassion for those who are either suffering or in some sort of need. And as we all know, when you're in that space, you sometimes are not the nicest person because you're angry and saying, I don't need your help. 
Well, it's a package, I think. Uh, when you're providing mercy with the power of faith, so you're not encouraging the person that you're showing mercy to, but if you have a smiling, happy confidence, uh, perhaps that's an additional aspect of mercy. Mm -hmm. I just found it an interesting pairing. And I think it's instructive as we think of our gifts. If you feel like you have the gift of mercy, well, this is something to, to meditate on. Now, by the way, I, I meant to bring this up earlier. There are many folks who are saying, well, I don't know what my spiritual gifts are. I have no idea. And there have been a multitude of attempts to create spiritual gift tests where they have, you know, series of questions. They're only helpful to a certain extent. Because um, I can tell you, when I was in high school, I, it wasn't a spiritual gifts test, it was a, um, a personality test. Oh, you love those? My personality test basically says you don't like people, so you need to work with machines. <laughs> I mean, nothing like being prophetic. Uh, but seriously, it took me on a different career path in my thinking, in studying, because I was thinking of going this way, and I realized, oh, well, if that's who I am, then I need to be going over here. And so I actually began studying and studying the idea of doing computer science back then. Um, if I had stayed with it, I'd be a billionaire today. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> oh man. Um, so the tests sometimes don't necessarily uh, help. At the same time, they can at least give some guidelines. And if you're curious, uh, I would imagine our church has some sort of conversation, so talk with one of the pastors, talk with one of the elders and say, well, where would be a place to go? And just, just have wisdom in that, because you may not know. And is it important that you have it identified? Not necessarily. Because we don't want to necessarily put labels on who we are or what we can do, because you might then be limiting what God does in your life. So be very careful about labels. Instead, in all humility, make yourself available in service to the body and then find out. You might get involved in something going, whoa, this is not for me. I am just not cut out to do this. Okay, now you know. You gave it your best, as long as you didn't, you know, blow up one of the buildings or blow up a group of people uh, emotionally, but it's more of a encouragement to say, let's find out where I can be of service. Because if you're not in service, you're not using your gifts at all. And that can be just as destructive to your own soul in my opinion, as not knowing what that gift is. So, let's end our time with prayer here. Lord, thank you for our time to explore your word again.
and talk of things that are familiar and yet need to be studied yet again and to be reminded that we are one body and that you have each one of our needs in mind that our needs are going to be met by you through someone else and that we could be that vehicle to help someone for whom you know their need. Lord, thank you for that. Thank you for the reminder of being humble in all of this. In Jesus' name, amen.